Listen. Nature speaks to us every day. Now, we must decide what we are going to say back. Welcome to Peak Wild, Stories on Earth. Hello, hello, welcome to Peak Wild, Stories on Earth. Join me, Zachary Blake, in conversation with the world's leading scientists, explorers, and conservationists, and hear their stories, all in pursuit of the preservation and understanding of our perfect planet. Uh, this is episode two, and I, I could not be more excited about this. Um, we've got a really amazing chat lined up for you, and, and now that I'm sitting here and thinking about it, um, in a lot of ways, South Africa has become a, a new home for me. Um, whether it's spending months in the field, on assignment, or on safari tracking lions on foot, Africa just has quite a hold on me. And for people that haven't been, you know, Africa is somewhere that you just have to... You've got to feel it for yourself. It's not something that you can really absorb through a picture or... You know, it's not like you're just sitting in a car looking at animals. It just really is a place that you feel. And... Northeast of Johannesburg remains a very special place. West of the Great Kruger National Park, alongside the Sand River, sits Londolozi, South Africa's iconic game lodge. This place is teeming with leopards, it has really amazing biodiversity, and this is a place that today's guest knows very, very well. Now, join me in this very fun, super engaging chat with guide, naturalist, and photographer, James Terrell. James, how's it going, mate? Good and you? Oh, very, very good. Uh, I'm just kind of, I'm over here in San Francisco, so I'm just kind of getting started for the day. <laughs> Cool, um, man. Yeah, so, well, we're closing down with a beer this side, so a very different, uh, <laughs> very different situation. That's the spirit, mate. <laughs> I yeah. thought about it'd be kind of cool. Yeah, how's the signal? Am I coming through okay? Yeah, Sorry, you sound you. great there. Cool. But yeah, I was thinking it'd be kind of fun to do like a podcast where like I drink, uh, like we just kind of sip whiskey together. And then I thought, well, other people like <laughs> live where it's like you know it's nighttime there but it's morning here so it's a bit weird for me to do that yeah reason. yeah well, uh, i don't know it could, could be a bit of a part of the appeal is like oh shit okay well this guy's clearly got something uh, he, yeah he right to talk okay. about yeah he's, oh, well maybe just push through from the night before <laughs> <laughs> just 8 a.m whiskey let's go <laughs> yeah nice man but um, but yeah, yeah yeah so anyway so uh th thanks for uh i guess taking the time to have a chat with me no, not at all. Only a pleasure. No, it's, it's cool to... Uh, thanks for, very much for, for inviting me. It's, I feel very honoured. Absolutely. So, how, how are things at Londolozi these days? Yeah, good. I mean, obviously, it's, things are, are slow, um, but we are, we're getting back on track bit by bit. I think, yeah, I'm sure as you're aware, the whole industry has taken a bit of a knock. Yeah. Um, but there is, a, there is a bit of travel, and especially in-country now, um, as lockdown regulations relaxed a little bit, yeah, most lodges are, have gone to offer local rates just to kind of get a bit of turnover coming in, um, and you know, not necessarily for ne not necessarily for themselves, but for their staff as well. You know, so it's a kind of a although things are still quiet, everyone's rotating 
test off through and, and things are slowly starting to pick up. I know February was fairly quiet, but that's traditionally a quiet season for us. But I think going forward into March, June, uh, March, April, May, June, so we've got, um, it looks like business is going to be picking up quite a bit. Um, we are very dependent on international bookings. So a lot of what we are going to get is going to be contingent upon international travel. But uh, things are looking good, you know, and it's uh, whether business aside the bush is amazing we've had the best rainfall we've had in five years so yeah the the ecosystem is incredibly healthy which is always a, a positive um, but but otherwise yeah things are ticking over and yeah you know there's certainly worse places to be locked down than, than londolozzi <laughs> yeah that's, that's what i was going to ask you so you've just been locked down at londolozzi this whole time <laughs> yeah so i mean uh, we were incredibly fortunate you know, the look, the lodge from a business point of view took a, took a bit of a hit, obviously, as, as did the whole industry. But there were a few of us who stayed on site to kind of keep things running and, and make sure maintenance was taken care of. And, and there were some of us on the media team. And basically, we had the whole reserve to ourselves for six months. No one else there. Just, just you know, a couple of mates. That sounds doing horrible. what we wanted. Yeah, paradise. I mean, photographically, <laughs> just adventures. We'd go on walks and sleep outs, and uh, it was amazing. So we were we were very, very lucky. You know, it certainly be being locked up in a flat somewhere. I, I can't imagine who's been doing that this whole time. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So we were, we, were, we were lucky. You know, I mean, once we'd kind of got past the, the initial sort of lockdown scare and we thought shucks you know is there any COVID here no and then we realized no no one's got it so we're isolated and and safe then it was a it was kind of cool let's just settle into it and and enjoy our time in the bush together and you know we're all good mates there so yeah we were we were very very fortunate last year um have have you noticed any behavioral changes in the wildlife with just no people around um not so much in the field uh in that most of the wildlife is fairly used to seeing land rovers around and, and trackers and, and, you know, the guys driving around. So out away from camp, nothing really. Um, you know, and we, we've actually, we've kind of crunched the numbers. I mean, they're, they're not reviewing leopards and lions and, and going by the individuals that we see on the reserve. We're looking at only about 5% of a leopard's life anyway, that there's a vehicle viewing it so if you take away that five percent it's really not a significant change in its normal day-to-day um Mm. the only major difference we noticed was that in camp where there was suddenly far less activity then we we started seeing a bit more so we started seeing a couple of leopards coming into camp i mean in the middle of the day you know we wouldn't even they come into camp often a couple of times a week during the night but they're generally quite nervous of people um, so it's usually just a case of seeing their tracks in the morning or occasionally you'll bump into one on the path on the way to dinner with guests. Um, but now we started seeing them middle of the day walking through. I mean, there was a, a female in her cup. They made a kill right outside the top office. And you know, they, they're still a bit nervous, but and they'd, if they, you know, they made a kill and they'd, they'd hoisted it in a tree right outside, in fact, where, where I work. And they wouldn't come in and feed in the day because they're people walking around, obviously, fairly carefully. Right. But after dark, they'd come back in, feed on the kill, and then in the morning, they'd be gone again. And, yeah, I mean, sometimes swimming swimming in the stock pool. I remember Easter morning, we were all having a swim. And we looked up, and there was a leopard just sauntering past about 30 meters away. It stopped, <laughs> looked at us, and then, then carried on its way. So, yeah, from that point of view, it was it was very, very special. Um, yeah, apart from that, not, not too much. You know, out in the greater reserve, 
pretty much unchanged. Uh, and that's, like I said, because there's very little impact on, on the wildlife anyway. Um, it's a very non-impact um, operation we've got running. What, um, I guess on that note, what sort of misconceptions do you think some people have about just the model of the safari? Um, look, it depends. I think from what I've gathered from driving guests, I don't drive that many guests these days. I'm more on the media side of things. But I know that people have a, and I, a lot of people we drive would think that they're just going to be viewing things from far away with binoculars and, you know, maybe get a glimpse of the rarest species. And I don't think there's a, a full enough appreciation of what the private concession offering can give to guests. I, I, look, I'm only speaking from the point of view of operating on a private reserve, but I don't know that that perspective does fit more in line with a, uh, a national park, like say the Kruger park, which is our neighbors, which is government run there. You're a little bit more limited because you have to stick to the roads. Um, and there are obviously regulations in place there because the traffic or the vehicle traffic is much higher. It's open to the public, but where we are in the private concessions, you know, you get a lot more freedom in terms of traversing, in terms of off-roading, the accessibility with the Land Rovers. So if a leopard leaves the road and walks into a thicket, it, it doesn't mean the sighting's over. So I think a lot of people are absolutely blown away by the intimacy of the encounters you can get, um, especially in an area like Londolozi where the animals are essentially habituated and they have been for about 30, 40 years because there's been no impactful uh, operations going on on the on the reserve and on the, on the not just on Losey, but the greater reserve as a whole there's been no hunting nothing like that so there's no fear the animals see the vehicles as essentially an, an extension of their environment we're just basically like a like a moving rock or a tree and they pretty much just ignore us i mean obviously there's a there's a sensitivity where you don't want to go too close and as soon as the animal looks at you in a funny way you know okay look we've gone a bit too close or we've disturbed it you want to re remain that uh, as sensitive as possible but I think especially from a, a private reserve point of view, people are just blown away by how how intimate an experience you can get and how unconcerned the animals are. So I, I don't know if that answers the question. But, no, um, it does, for sure. Yeah, just, yeah just, <laughs> just from my experience in the private lodge sphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I talk, actually talked to a lot of people. So I, I, I mentioned I split my time between here and South Africa. And I, I'll chat, yeah. chat with people about and getting out in the wild and doing a safari in a lot of people you'd be a surprise a lot of people i think confuse like what a real safari is with like a trophy hunting operation and i'm like that was so different where'd you get that <laughs> yeah i mean i think well i think it's probably because of the, the evolution of the name i mean a, a safari back in the day was a big two-month operation with 500 camp helpers and it was primarily hunting i mean no one was going around to photograph it was only in the I don't know, 60s 70s that cameras started becoming well that the camera started replacing rifles on a regular basis and i think it was being called safari long before then so that kind of old school impression is i think just stuck around um yeah and sometimes negatively as as you say yeah right and i th and, I, and i think part of that is that there is a bit of an overlap with the use of the word in the hunting industry as well so i think you know as much as it's, it's used in the photographic industry I'm, I'm sure in the hunting side of things which I, I don't really have any experience with that it's used just as frequently yeah, right. so i'm sure that's where, where, where the confusion stems from um could you talk a little bit about the history of londolozi and the sabi sands yeah sure so i mean it's a it's a pretty cool one and that's 
it was it was defunct and non-productive cattle land uh, at, at the turn or just after the turn of the last century. So Londolos itself was born uh, out of a, a tennis party in Johannesburg where the two purchasers, John, sorry, um, Charles Boyd Varty and Frank Unger, they were two friends. And they'd had a few too many gin and tonics and heard about this land that was for sale in what was then the, the Eastern Transvaal. Um, and they bought it sight unseen for, I think it was 238 pounds, which, as you can imagine, was a fairly good investment given the land's value uh, right now. Um, and they, it was, it was previously cattle farming land, but you know, lions would eat the cattle and there used to be a lot more malaria in the area. Summer was so hot and the grazing wasn't that good. So that's why the, I think it was a, a company called Transvaal Lands Consolidated or Transvaal Consolidated Lands, I forget which. Um, they were just selling off sections of, of land and it was all bought up during the 20s and 30s. Um, and I think it was only in 1948, I stand to be corrected, that it was consolidated into the Sabi Sands Reserve. But it was it was a hunting concession for many years. So every year, the owners, the Longlows, the owners included, they would come down, set up shop for a month, two months, um, and just live on the land, hunt for the pots. So they'd go and shoot an impala, and that would be food for a couple of days. Very, very rustic. I mean, they'd bring goats down to provide milk for the kids. It would take two days to get here by train, and then they'd come by ox wagon. And that went on for 50 years. And then in the 70s, uh, sadly, John and Dave Varty, who are the current owners, their father, who was the son of the original purchaser, this is now Boyd Varty Sr. So sorry, let me just bench back. So Charles Boyd Varty bought the property. His son, Boyd Varty, inherited it from him. And then he sadly passed away of a heart attack. Um, at a, he was fairly young. I think he was in his 50s. And his son's john and dave who are the current owners they opted to keep the farm they were urged to sell it there their mum had debts to pay off and her lawyers said look you're not going to be able to uh, afford the levies and your best bet is just to to sell it and, and get what price you can and john and dave her sons who i think were only 18 and 20 at the time and um, they said no no look if we hang on to it we will set up this safari operation because uh, I think one of our neighbors had just started doing something similar at the time, started photographic safaris. And, I mean, they didn't know what they were doing. They were, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, and I think they finished their varsity degrees first and then started running these little ramshackle safaris. I think it was three rand a day to start off with. <laughs> and it was, usually, it was usually just weekends. Their friends would come down from Johannesburg and and the the I think the early brochure said, look, you know, bring your own beer because we don't have any. We'll trade <laughs> impala meat for beer, and hopefully the Land Rover works. And I mean, it was a, it was a terrible operation. I mean, I think Dave Varty famously took an entire game drive in reverse because the <laughs> the gearbox was broken. Um, but but slowly things started to develop, and they started getting this reputation as a place where you could have a good time. And I think that was something they they cottoned onto pretty early on is that the the viewing of the wildlife well that was a primary reason people were visiting what mattered at the end of the day was just the experience people were having and that wasn't underpinned entirely by the wildlife it was just you know if you had a good time great so they had this I mean, and they were young and you know ambitious and they had this amazing sense of fun that they brought to the experience it was just guitars around the boma and 
if the vehicle got stuck, all the guests would be in the mud helping dig out the, the, the car. And and it was that kind of spirit of adventure which permeated through the whole lodge during those early days. And then in this seven, 1979, I think it was, they got a, a this, oh, sorry, let me actually, I'm going to take quite a long time to answer this because there are some very important points to, in the Londolosi's history that kind of have affected what the lodge has become now. Um, in the late 70s, they realized that the game viewing wasn't as productive as it had been 20 years before when, you know, their father had been coming to the lodge or to the, the, the little farm. And they realized that a lot of the, the grazing animals that they used to see, they weren't seeing anymore. And they weren't 100% sure what was going on because there was nothing obvious that they were doing or that had changed. So they called in an outside ecologist, a guy called Ken Tinley. And he was, well, he was actually Australian. So there you go. Oh, nice. um, and he was, yeah, proud, man. This, this guy had a, an enormous role to play in Londolosi's history. <laughs> so Ken Tinley, I think he was a bit of a maverick at the time. And people were saying, no, he's got these crazy ideas. And, and I don't think he was taken too seriously in the greater scientific community. But I, John and Dave liked what he had to say. And he came along and he looked at the land as it stood then. This was in 78, 79, I think. And he compared it to aerial photographs that had been taken during the 1940s. And he recognized that the kind of patchwork, mosaic, grassland, woodland habitat that had dominated in the first half of the century had now been replaced by these extensive bush encroachments and that had pushed a lot of grazers off the land. There weren't these open clearings that used to be available for wildebeest and sable antelope and, and a few other species. And one of the reasons had been a fence line that had been erected between the Kruger Park and the Sabi Sands. This had cut off a lot of animal movements. It had cut off elephants moving back and forth and the elephants used to help keep the clearings open. And Kenton, he recognized that the water table was now affected as well. So it wasn't only the grasslands that had been closed off and it shrunk because of encroachment. It was also that these encroaching woody species were uh, dropping the water table. They were extracting water that would have been used for the, for grass, by grass growing. And then obviously the lack of grass meant there weren't any grazers coming in to take advantage of it. So Kenton, he said, look, if you remove this encroachment and you block up the erosion that's now happening as a result, you might start... Uh, you, you'll get the water table to rise and you might start seeing a bit of recovery. And so they did this. They had some extensive clearing operations. They started changing where roads were running to prevent erosion. They started blocking up drainage lines. And literally, they say, a week after they started this whole process, they started seeing water seeping out through the ground again like it used to do historically. And within a month, I mean, this is one of the sort of magical stories of Londolosi. Within a month, they saw a female leopard had moved into the area. And before that, they, they saw leopards, but they were fairly skittish. And it was maybe once a month, a brief sighting. Um, but within a month of this clearing operation that they started, started on the advice of Ken Tinley, this female leopard moved into the area that was incredibly relaxed. And she was the first female or the first leopard that actually allowed Land Rovers to view her, to view it. And they recognized that this that this was kind of a, it could be an amazing draw card. And so they started a huge focus on habituating this female in particular, and then successive generations of leopards to Land Rovers. So they hired a lot of the local guys, a lot of the local trackers, some of whom were ex-poachers, and they said to them, look, we'll give you employment, 
we want to track leopards, but we then we're just going to view them. We're not going to kill them. We're not going to hunt them. We're just going to view them. Guests will come. They'll pay money. That's your salary. And so began this amazing relationship with with leopards, and in particular that first leopard. She became known as the mother leopard, and she, I think, on record today, she is one of the most successful leopards ever studied i think she raised nine litters of cups to independence wow. which hasn't hasn't been matched since then well as far as anyone's recorded i mean maybe another female has in some area that's it, no one knows about um but her cubs then grew up habituated to the vehicles their cubs did the same and now we're looking at our i think an, our eighth generation of leopards directly descended from that original female um, that we're still viewing on the on the property to this day. Wow, that's amazing. And that's all. Yeah, that's all because of that early rehabituation or re- habitat, and then rehabituation of the leopards in the seventies. And yeah, and that's that's where it all started. Huh. Yeah, that's that's so wild. I mean, what a genesis. Um, and yeah, sorry, it's quite a, kind of kind of a long story. Like no. I, could, I could say more, but I'll, I'll cut it off there because I'm no. sure there's a lot more to talk about. Really. Talk talk away. That's great. Um, now, so I, I, I've never been to Londelosi before, but I've stayed within, in the Sabi Sands and, um, yeah, man, I feel like if we, we go to like, go to Sabi Sands and don't see a leopard, it's super unlucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it kind of is, look, it does happen, but, yeah. um, they, they actually, they completed a camera trap survey. There's a, an organization called Panthera. I don't know if you know of them. Yes, big cat NGO, yeah, I'm sure you've heard of them, they're based in New York, and they've completed a couple of camera trap surveys in the Sabi Sands, and so far, out of all the places they have studied, and at multiple reserves across Southern Africa, um, the Sabi Sands has the highest density of leopards that they've yet recorded, and I think at the heart of the densest areas, it's something like 11 leopards per 100 square kilometers, so that's a 10 by 10 kilometer by 10 kilometer area, um, and that's that's unmatched anywhere as far as I'm aware. So it's really the kind of pinnacle of leopard um, populations that you can get. And as a study site of leopard behavior, especially with vehicle density records that go back to the 70s, it's just this unbelievable resource for leopards' knowledge, really. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, you are pretty unlucky if you don't come and if you come and don't see one. That's an amazing density. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so I, I actually study leopards. Um. In in a couple of different regions. So I work on them in South in South Africa, where you are, and uh, oh, fantastic. Starting yeah. up here in Malawi in the next probably year or so. Um, yeah. So that's an okay, animal. Sorry, I'm, I'm really embarrassed that I asked if you knew who Panthera was. No, it's so. fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, the cat uh, is a real, I've got a real soft spot for them. And I think from uh, my time in, in Sobi, um, I've met, I think there's a leopard known as Kuchava and there's another one, I think, uh, uh, Hukumuri and Tingana, yeah. I think, are the yeah. ones that I've met. Yeah, the guys, yeah. the ones up north. Yeah, yeah. cool. Um, are there any, any leopards that uh, you're particularly fond of? Um, oh, it's hard to say. And there's some that we don't see often because Londolosi is fairly big and our traversing area. And, and you know, the, the, ca- the leopards that are territorial close to camp, you tend to see far more of. And... Um, the ones that are living in the far reaches of the reserve, you might see once every couple of months, and 
you know, and or even excuse me, even less. Um, and I, I mean, I've been at Blonde Lozzy for about ten years now, so I've seen a lot, a lot of them come and go. Um, I guess there's a female called the Mashaba female who she was just independent when I started at Blonde Lozzy. She'd left her mother a couple of months before, and she has now. She is now our oldest female. She's been around forever, and it's kind of cool having seen her raise cubs to maturity. Some of her cubs have had their own cubs. Um, we don't see her all that often anymore, but it's kind of special to to bump into her and still remember sightings from ten years ago, where I saw her as a young female just jumping through the trees and. Her mother was actually the very first leopard I saw at Londolozzi, and she might have been the second, I think. So, I mean, I'm, I, I, I haven't even tried to count how many I've seen over my time at the reserve. But, yeah, I, I, it's also funny when you, don't, you try not to get too attached because invariably something happens, they move off, they'll get killed, and you kind of just learn to accept this after a while and... Um, but yeah, she's probably my favorite. It's always a bit of a oh, nice one when, when we see her. And, and if, you know, if someone's found her on a kill, I'm always thinking, okay, look, I'd rather go and, and see what's happening there instead of another leopard because there's, there's history. I mean, she wouldn't recognize me from a bar of soap. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it's, it doesn't work both ways. But uh, yeah, I think the fact that I've been seeing her for 10 years is pretty special. That's really cool that you get to, I guess, observe a species from the time that you know it comes into the world to the time it leaves it that's a really special i think uh, relationship that you you get and not not just you but like just being a guide in general um, yeah yeah absolutely i mean and especially with females because they, they you know they tend to stay they, they tend to set up territory a little bit more locally for, for the most part not always but um the males generally disperse but the young females can stick around for for a long time their whole lives can be lived in within the same same area yeah, that's really special. Um, what what would you say guiding means for you? Um, it's funny, you know, because you, you you I think your the appeal in it develops as you do it more and more as as you develop as a guide. I think most guys get into it purely to just have a cool time in the bush, especially as a South African you grow up with these visions of beautiful leopards and trees and amazing close encounters. And, and that is what it is. I mean, look, it obviously depends on where you work. Um, but the lifestyle is the appeal generally that will bring people in and get people wanting to, to start on that as a career. Um, and for some, it's not a career. It's a couple of years and then they go back to a more corporate or urban existence work in the cities. Um, but I think for those who keep doing it for longer, you start getting your satisfaction far more from what you you can provide to your, your educational ability. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's cool to have guests when you start out enthralled by what you can teach them but you know you're so excited by just everything you're so overstimulated as a new guide that the wildlife is just everything but as you develop more and more as a guide and you realize you can actually offer far more value as a as an educator and as a someone who can spread a conservation message that's where your satisfaction comes from more because at the risk of sounding jaded you know once you've seen a leopard hoist a kill 30 or 40 times it, it it's not 
as exciting as the first time. Obviously, it's amazing, but it's you know it's it's ninety eight percent instead of a hundred percent wild. So that extra two percent that starts coming far more from the message you can impart to guests, and you know especially when you start tweaking your your narrative depending on where your guests are from, what they're like. Um, and if you can kind of wrap up a safari for people knowing that they have left with a far better idea of the, well, the ecosystem as a whole, but not just that, their impact as as visitors, how they're not only supporting an ecosystem, but they're also supporting um, the economy of wildlife, which is a far greater and probably more important conversation, which is, you know, contingent on the relationship between wildlife and those living on the fringes and sometimes within wildlife areas i think that's where you start getting a, getting far more value as a kind of a more senior guide as you progress your your guiding journey did i make sense there I mean, yeah absolutely yeah and yeah. actually you're making me think i mean so like I, I could give many talks um using like powerpoints and showing pictures about all the work that we're doing and it that that is nothing compared to you know you have people physically with you they're in the vehicle and you have a whole herd of elephants <laughs> around the vehicle yeah that's a powerful yeah. tool you've got there yeah completely i mean we have people i mean i'm sure you've seen it you know you've been to the sabi sands you've been to wildlife areas but you have people who literally burst into tears the first time they come face to face with something like that and it, it doesn't have to be the most dramatic wildlife sighting and it could just be your first sight of a giraffe something that people have dreamed of for 50 years and now this thing's real and it's staring you in the face and yeah it's it's in a it's it's emotional it's it's powerful and i think the, the quicker as a guide you can tap into that emotive power of wildlife the, the better experience you can give because it's far less about just telling people that's a giraffe that's a you know it lives for 30 or 20 something years it's gestation periods that the information is way distant second to the connection with what's being seen seen how it's been seen and i think that is where um the real power of guiding is and, and the best guys are able to understand that the experience is not dependent on how much they know it's being able to read the situation and far more often than not saying less is far more powerful um you've got to just let people sink into that experience and the last thing they want to do is hear you rattle off a whole lot of facts about impala running speed and, and all that you know it's but, often it's better to just sit and look but it's, yeah James, it's, it can be incredible I, I would like to know how big it gets and how fast it goes <laughs> yeah <laughs> jesus top of the hot door I don't, hopefully fast enough to get away from a cheetah that's coming after it but uh, <laughs> pretty fast uh, we're not gonna catch one put it that way what's uh so all right so um what would you say your approach to bringing guests into the tent of conservation would be um well look i think the establishing that connection with wildlife is you mean what's actually on the reserve and now you've got them in your vehicle and you're taking them out is that kind of what you no, more or less like for? so you've got somebody that i think may may or may not have i guess an exposure to to wildlife or to conservation um and you just sort of i guess i, I don't know how to how to word this maybe just how, how do i take you and go hey this is important and here's why 
Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. I mean, it's obviously quite an important one. I think the the I know where Londolozzi specifically is trying to go currently is, is recognizing the greater power of conservation to make change in people's lives, not just the wildlife. To to get across that it's about something far bigger than just viewing an animal in its natural habitat. It's so I, I know a, a year or two ago we made a video called "The Power of Your Safari," and we started crunching the numbers, which we actually have at hand. And it's look for every single night that you, as a guest, spend at Longdelosi. Here's what you're doing: you are conserving six rhino. You are sending six kids to school you are giving two adults food for a month and it, if when you crunch the numbers like that and you recognize that there's this kind of interdependence between wildlife and and communities surrounding wildlife areas you recognize that the, the picture is far bigger than just getting you know a photograph of a leopard lying on a tree um the power to make change in people's lives i think is is quickly becoming the new narrative of conservation not in any way suggesting that the wildlife is secondary but it's just focusing far more on the interdependence um especially in an african context where the reality these days is that if wildlife can't pay it has to pay to stay if that may, i mean it sounds like such a terrible um just money driven uh, approach to it but when you're looking at overpopulation when you're looking at a need for land people are looking at subsistence farming if there is a wildlife areas that you need to um promote the the continued existence of it's it needs to somehow benefit those who live in the area there needs to be this kind of um yeah a, a relationship formed and in, in fact if we journey back to ken tinley who was the original guy who we did who made all the suggestions about land care and and um, re-establishing the water table, his early advice was: Look, you can't be a, an island of wealth in a sea of poverty. As any lodge, you can't just be bringing in guests from all over the world and doing well and be you know, economically on the up when there are people living very close to your reserve that are impoverished and struggling. So, uh, I think it's it's well recognised in the greater context of African wildlife that. You know, community-driven wildlife projects of the future, and that you know you can't have a a viable lodge or reserve without heavy community involvement, um, and and I think that just that discussion is is far more powerful than just telling people, look, guys, conservation is important because a lion needs a place to roam around in. You know, that's very one-dimensional. As soon as you start incorporating the human element and having this extensive crossover i think then that can get people involved um far more and and people a lot of more people sit up and, and take notice yeah <laughs> did, I, did i answer the question a little bit i hope i kind of yeah yeah, yeah you're there um and uh yeah i do lots of uh, educational talks with people and this is precisely what i tell them you know just the the easiest most inadvertent way of protecting wildlife is simply just to go see them in the wild i mean whether it's a tiger or an elephant or a philippine eagle you name it it's just that tourism is going to keep these animals around for us well into the future um yeah yeah exactly yeah
So, and I think I think one. Well, sorry, I mean one more. Just an important point there is I know people talk about we get a lot of questions in our in our social media and in our online space, and people ask about impact, and they talk about you know say we're viewing a, a leopard and it's got a kill in a tree, and maybe the cub's nervous, and, and people talk about they they they'll often ask, look, aren't you impacting the animal? And that the, the impact inverted commas is a very it's an interesting spectrum to look at because no impact means look we pack up everything and we leave we pack up the lodge we pack up the vehicles we just don't in any way enter that animal space or territory the reality there is that then no one benefits and this highlights the this is the sort of deep dive you have to take if you want to understand the greater context of what safari operations try to do is that you can't that the not the completely non-impactful approach is a lose-lose because that means that the land is not benefiting anyone which means it'll probably be converted into farmland and then the wildlife will disappear and there'll be no more parks so there's this kind of fine balance you have to take as a reserve where you're going to impact in some way but you know, you obviously just got to be quite careful to, to monitor that. And I, that's just, I know it's a, it's a discussion we try to have, we try to educate people a lot where, I mean, we got a question the other day about spotlights, you know, isn't that impacting? We say, look, yes, there is an impact. There's never no impact. You know, you've got a vehicle there that the animal can hear you coming. Um, but that minor impact, that's going to bring in guests from America get to get the sighting of their life who are then providing the money that supports the, the lodge, which in turn supports the community, which in turn supports education and social upliftment. And yeah, and I think that's, like I said, that's that's the narrative that, that we are trying to focus on as much as possible. Yeah, and that's a narrative that I think um, most people uh, don't really get to hear. And that's awesome. Um, and that, But that's also just the reality of things, you know. Um, but uh, could, could you talk a little bit about, I guess... Um, like sighting protocol. So you, you've got a number of guides around the sighting. Like, so what do you do to make sure the animal is comfortable and happy? Yeah. So I think the, so I mean, look, the, the bottom line we have is that the, the great thing about Londolos is that there's no official rules. They're guidelines and the guys say, look, you know, this is how we're going to operate. This is the protocol generally, but within the situation, any guide, no matter how senior, junior, whatever, you are completely empowered to make a decision, which ultimately needs to be for the uh, the with the animal as the um, as the priority, the animal's well-being. So, general, just basic protocol is three vehicles maximum per sighting. Um, if it's slightly more sensitive, you know, maybe it's a female leopard with young cubs that aren't used to the cars then we drop those numbers and we might say, look, only one vehicle per day can go and view them. And if you do that, then you've got to park at a distance and be very quiet and you just, you slowly get the animals trussed up. Um, and, but on the reverse of that is, look, if you're parked on top of a cliff and 300 meters away, you see a female leopard moving her cubs from a den site to a new one and she's carrying them in her mouth that's you know once in a lifetime sighting if you're 300 meters away on the top of a cliff she won't even know you're there and you can call in a hundred people and all watch with binoculars and that's not going to impact her whatsoever so 
I think we're fairly, fairly lucky in that we operate on our own reserve. We don't really have to worry about any other vehicles. It's just Londolozzi. Um, and so guys are trained, or firstly, guys are hired with the understanding that, okay, these are the guys that fit, or guys and girls that'll fit the mold of what we're trying to achieve in our culture, which is, you know, wildlife centric. It's, there's a sensitivity, there's a professionalism. And then the training for rangers is heavily based on that decision-making, um, which is based on interpretation of, of wildlife behavior. So although the substandard is, okay, three vehicles in a sighting, and then you obviously give the animals as much space as you need. As I mentioned earlier, you know, if an animal suddenly turns and looks at you, it probably means you've come a bit close and you've crossed that line. Um, so you never want that to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But within a sighting, you anyone's empowered to say, look, guys, we need to back off or, you know, I'm going to leave and only keep one vehicle here. Um, after dark, it's it, things change, of course, as well, because things get sensitive to the light. So we don't shine on diurnal animals. Um, we have filters that we use to reduce the glare of our spotlight. So if we find a leopard or something with a the bright beam, we'll then put a filter over and people can view it to their heart's content and it doesn't really affect the uh, the animal's behavior at all then if a leopard decides to start hunting if it sees something and wants to go after then we go lights down and the same with lions the same with with any predator we don't want to impact the hunt and that works both ways so it's we don't want to help the predator by you know scaring the impala or whatever it might be towards it but we also don't want to give the impala an advantage by shining on the predator so it's lights down. If it's in the day, it's back off as far as possible and, and off to the side where you can just watch everything unfold, um, which can be frustrating, especially uh, for guests who, you know, they want to see the, the great wildlife interactions. But as a range, you, you're trained to kind of explain to people, look, guys, what we want to see happens if we let this play out. As soon as we go in, if we keep watching closely the whole thing, chances are we're going to impact and the leopard's not going to catch the impala the lions aren't going to catch the buffalo we have got to stick to the side let it play out and then if things develop the way i'm sure the animal wants it to then you know then there's the drama kicks in um but but the ultimate priority is wildlife first um the sort of guiding safety a dist- uh, or second and then the quality of the sighting third so if, if you you're not going to be um putting a car right on top of a little leopard cub, scaring its pants off just so that someone can get a photo. That's just ludicrous. Um, and the nice thing there is that if you use your, the sensitivity approach in your explanation, then no one can argue with it. You, ha- you can just say to guys, look, we're going to scare this cub. It's not going to be one. Of, it's not going to want to be viewed by Land Rovers for months. So we're going to leave it in peace. And if anyone argues with that, then they look like a bit of a knob. So it's a, it's a, it's a fairly easy one to go with. Um, <laughs> So that's ultimately it. I mean, like there are protocols in place, but ultimately it's just a, a sensitive approach to not impact the natural behavior. We're only we're there to observe, and and that's the real magic. You know, if you you can you don't want to interpret behavior based on a leopard being scared of a land rover. You want to interpret it based on it marking territory, hunting, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, you don't you want as little interference as possible, if if any. Yeah, yeah, you got to be participants, yeah. but not. Uh, be observers but not participants yeah. you know um, yeah exactly which can be tough you know because we see things that are difficult to to watch i mean 
guys have seen leopard cubs being killed by hyenas and lions eating buffalo while they're still alive and yeah and you just have to observe and look some people aren't happy with seeing that and you drive away and that's right. that's okay but um yeah you can the trick there is just to sort of manage it up front and you say look guys this this might be what's going to happen based on the situation if anyone's uncomfortable we we can leave but this is the reality of of life in african bush and yeah. you know and you kind of press forward with that understanding uh, I'm sure you've uh, pretty much daily you see really amazing things. What are what are a couple of your favourite stories from the bush? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, yeah, it, it, so many. It's uh, actually, I mean, the beauty of having worked there for so long is that I every couple of weeks I'll remember something special and go, oh wow, that you know, remember that, and I've currently forgotten it for five years. Um, I think probably the hot, one of the best is we once found. Uh, a litter of leopard cubs that were probably about 24 hours old three of them and i mean totally blind they only opened their eyes after a, a week 10 days and the, yeah that we saw the female was heavily pregnant the day before in the morning in the afternoon the guys saw her and it, they said it looked like she'd given birth and in the morning we uh, sorry the next morning they found her on a kill about two kilometers from where they'd seen her the day before. And we had an idea that she was denning along a specific drainage line. So we just went, a couple of us went tracking to see if we could establish roughly where the den was so that we knew, okay, going forward, if we're following her back to the den, we know where to park and view from to keep it safe and not impact the cubs. And we were following tracks and quite by chance with these, these cubs where we weren't expecting them to be. And they were, I mean, totally blind. The, the three of them could have fitted together into the palm of my hand. And their the spots are so close together because they're so tiny. They look gray. They don't even look like a leopard's colors. And I, they, they don't even have a clue that we're there. I don't even know how good their hearing is at, at 24 hours old. Um, and we had about three seconds where we looked at these things and completely freaked out. And I think one guy got a quick photo on his phone. Stupidly, I didn't have a camera there. We weren't expecting to see that at all. Um, but they, and then yeah, left them. And I mean, it's the kind of thing you you can hardly breathe for about an hour after that. It doesn't seem real. You think, oh my word! You know, some people dream about seeing a leopard in the wild, and now we've just seen newborn cubs from two meters away, not even, and they didn't even know we were there. So you kind of there's a there's a there's a, an intense vulnerability that you feel thinking, cheapest. What if the mom? finds us here even though you know she's a couple of kilometers away on a kill and, and we told guys listen radio us if she starts moving in this direction <laughs> um but also there's this intense empathy you feel for these tiny little things that are also so vulnerable you know i mean if we found them you know what's to stop a hyena stumbling upon them and yeah so you you, you things like that give you an, an amazing appreciation for the the, the well, the savagery of life out there, and you think, God, I mean, the fact that any leopard survives to maturity is is incredible. I mean, look, most of them don't. That's that's the sad thing. Um, there's a very high mortality rate when they're young, but I remember that one being particularly special. And then, you know, then their first of everything is the first time seeing lions kill a buffalo, which is that's the kind of ultimate, the holy grail of wildlife kills, but it's it's not actually as as great as. You think I, I, I hesitate to use the word "great." I mean, it, you know, it's not a happy sighting, but right, right. people often think, "Wow, drama!" and it's amazing, but it can be drawn out and slow, and it's yeah, and you, oh, very quickly that buffalo's 
in a lot of pain and it's actually unpleasant to watch. So although it's, it's dramatic and the build-up is usually what is the most intense, you know, the back and forth, um, the actual takedown and, and thereafter is is not cool to watch. So, I mean, even for guides who you, you semi-desensitized after a couple of years, but it's, yeah, it's hard to see. Um, and I, I, going back to what we were saying earlier, sorry, I'm blabbing on over here, but I know no, you yeah. asked about... Um, your kind of take home as a guide and I was saying how what makes it valuable for you when you start off changes as you get more and more into it it's the same thing with what sightings you appreciate and that you start getting a far better far greater appreciation for the tiny things that you've never seen before I mean in summer especially every couple of days I see a new insect that I've never known about and you know a new praying mantis and when you're first starting out in the bush everything's just coming at you thick and fast and lions and leopards and you're just blown away by the bigger stuff but like i said once you start you've seen a leopard hoist a kill 50 times then you start realizing okay hang on there's a much greater depth to this ecosystem and nesting birds little bugs reproduction and frogs that's the stuff that starts really floating your boat after a couple of years so it's cool you know as you the longer you stay there, the more you, you burrow down into the ecosystem, which, yeah, and, and then the little things become really exciting. Yeah, and uh, that's just sort of how it is out there. And I think the one of the things I love most about Africa, um, just I think in general, is you can see the environment working. You know, you can see all the all the levels of the environment just sort of doing its thing. I, I think I, I'll draw the comparison. So here here in california um you know you go for a hike and you're lucky if you see um a deer <laughs> it's it's like yeah. low low population densities of things here so you just don't you don't really get to see the environment work i think as immediate as you get in yeah. africa yeah very much so. and i think especially obviously the longer you live somewhere the more you can see the relationships playing out and i think that's also a very important thing in in the greater context of um conservation is that our human timeline is far shorter than nature's and things changing year by year if it looks like something's on a downward spiral there tends to be a panic and we implement change and new management policies when actually no no it's just on a dip that it'll do every 10 years in the cycle and then you know whether it's a population or whether it's rainfall whatever it might be um and i think that that appreciation of the much longer cycles in nature than than our kind of human you know we have the financial year and it's okay it's christmas time and that's our cycle um it's slightly different in the bush although yes it is seasonal in a lot of places um long term it's 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 far more important i mean just looking at londolosi in 2015 2016 we had a a really bad drought and i mean the whole reserve was it was just dust and it was it was hard to see things suffering the buffalo in particular got hammered i mean we lost i think something like half the reserve's population to starvation lions and people think about drought as a as a lack of water and in the wild it's actually usually a lack of food that gets things and during that time it was i mean it was hard to to guide you're taking people out into this environment that is slowly killing things and you have to explain this is this is nature it's long term and it but it's tricky to appreciate when as a guest you're only coming out for a couple of days and you're seeing this stark landscape with 
with everything looking in poor condition apart from the predators who were loving life. But now, you fast forward five years and we've just had, our, I say we've just had, we're still in our rainy season and we've already had significantly higher rain than we've had in the last three, four years. And the bush is as thick as I think I've ever seen it. It's a non-lozy, everything's lush and the birds are out and nesting and the insects are there and the frogs are calling. Um, and to see that seasonal change and not only this season, but to compare it to the same seasonal change, which was in no way um, uh, of the same scale or magnitude five years ago, it's really cool. When you start getting th that appreciation for the fact that it's not just rain, it's actually this life giver and everything is just getting energy from it. It's it's special. You know, you, you start looking at at uh, what at weather in particular completely differently. Yeah. Um, yeah, so being being a part of it, living there is it, it gives you a whole new insight and and like you said, the, the seeing the bush working, how things are related, those little relationships are fantastic to to really get to get into. So who who would you I guess for somebody that has never like been to Africa or seen an African environment, who who would you say the major players are in I guess South African ecology, or at least maybe just for Londolosi? Um, elephants in particular, you know, they, I think they get a bit of a bad reputation because they're fairly destructive, uh, pushing over trees and um, it wasn't as impactful when there was a lot more habitat for them. I mean, if you look at any species that's in trouble today, it's generally the biggest thing to look at is habitat loss. Um, and essentially, even though we were where we are as part of an amazing open ecosystem that's about six million acres it's still essentially ringed in you know it's the kruger park it goes into the limpopo national park it's all the private reserves um but there is still a there's a fence and the population is it can't it's not free it's free roaming within the reserve but there is a limit to the reserve so that starts having a long-term environmental impact you know especially when the elephants I mean they are yeah they're they're, they're an apex species so they'll uh uh, well, keystone species, sorry, you know, they, they have a lot of uh, great effect on the reserve. I mean, I even know rangers who worked in the Sabi Sands 10 years ago, and they've come back um, as guests, and they've said, look, one of the big things they've noticed is that there are fewer big trees around, and that's 90% elephants. I mean, you're sure there are a couple of trees uh, killed by lightning, but, but elephants, probably over 90% of them. Um and I mean, look, that's a, that's probably a discussion for another time. But it's it's a long it's it's what do we do? Because there's some who advocate culling, some who advocate relocation, but then you get into costs. And it's you know we talked earlier about the um, the how much impact you have as people and people advocating a, a non-impact approach, hands off, let the wildlife sort itself out. But once you have established a boundary to an area, as a human population or a conservation organization, whatever it might be, you have an obligation to, to, I don't want to controls kind of a negative word, but to, um, to, to inter, intervene or to manage is probably the best word. Um, and ultimately the mandate for, of, of South African national parks, I think most national parks in Africa or most the, the park sports is to maintain biodiversity and that's this is now where people are starting to get up in arms because i mean particularly from the point of view of an elephant elephant conservation is that people say no look, save the elephants this is what you're going to do and it's all about them and although they are you know flagship species that's the draw card for 
millions of visitors to reserves all over Africa. Um, the reality is, look, if, if they're just allowed to do their thing, you know, uncontrolled un, un or unregulated, then biodiversity suffers massively and not just from the point of view of the vegetation, other things that are dependent on that vegetation. And there's a huge knock-on effect. Now, I'm not saying I have an answer off the top of my head, but um, I think the education in this context is, is very important because I, I, it's very easy to promote the, you know, the, the cause of the elephants without, and because they're visible, they're magnificent, they've got family values and bonds and they're emotional and, um, but there's far more to it than just that. Um, and I think it, there's a there's a lack of appreciation of the greater implications of the ecosystem um, that makes people too quick to, you know, suggest our solutions and um, shout down those who advocate you know, something that they don't agree with. Um, I'm kind of getting off topic here, but um, <laughs> no, you're fine. yeah. So anyway, that's that's the plight of the elephants. The other one is the, the termites. I think, and uh, just going back to them. And I remember in the drought that I mentioned earlier, 2015, 2016, we were driving along a, a barren hillside that used, usually is just lush grass everywhere, and we were driving with a, a very experienced guide. He's coming for he did, comes and helps with the training at Londolozi, and he's been in the bush for about 20 years. And he looked around and he said, guys, you know what's happening here? This isn't overgrazed. This is just one giant termitarium. And what we've seen from the air, if you send a drone up to you know, a couple hundred meters, it's just this, the whole reserve is just this amazing kind of lattice work of termite mounds that are evenly spaced. And they're not operating as isolated little islands with their own little colonies they're actually all interconnected underground there's just so much biomass there i mean they, they say that all the termites in the kruger park weigh more than all the elephants so, and what? you think of how small a termite is and you know think of how heavy an elephant is so you think of the, the sheer number of termites um that has to that there has to be to to make up that kind of biomass and for the, the impact on vegetation that they have i think is incredibly underrated um, but look, they, but they play an important role. So do the elephants. They they aerate the soil. They um, add nutrients to it in the form of their you know they're bringing um, foliage and vegetation underground. And um, so they've all got their role. But I think you know the, the the issue starts coming in when an area is controlled, particularly in the context of a, a mega herbivore like like elephants. Sorry, I went very off topic there. I get <laughs> I get quite passionate when it, when it comes to these kind of discussions. But no, that's <laughs> good. Yeah, I could go on. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, but it's it's fascinating. I like you know, the biggest and the smallest are probably the two biggest influences of, of what's happening out there. Yeah. Um, so for somebody who's never been to the South African bush, um, could you try to illustrate, I guess, what that's like? Um, I think the beauty of what I've seen time and time again is that it is way more magical than you would ever believe. I think, you know, the reality that people are faced with is that the, the, how spectacular it is is greater than anything you could see in a brochure. It's better than anything you can watch in a video. And that's because it's just an 
overwhelming sense all around sensory experience it's something you can't capture in media you're not smelling you're not looking around 360 you, when you're watching something online or on tv um it is from the minute you get out of your car or step off the plane you're just getting assaulted by smells and noises and it's new and it's wild and it's it's um you just wear a grin 24/7 um I mean, I, I'm insanely jealous of anyone I welcome to Londolozi who is visiting the African bush for the first time because I know I, I won't have that feeling again of the first time in the bush. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, there aren't enough good things I can say about it. Anything I say in terms of a recommendation, it just seems, to my mind, like way undervaluing the experience. Right. It's, it, they, they're just it's so... It's just abounding with cliches of, um, yeah, I mean, there are too many to mention, but it is, and to, trying to describe it and trying to sort of distill it into into words is just, I mean, overwhelming is the best word I can use for it. Uh, to, to be sitting at dinner and hearing lions roar, and especially in an area where you're seeing them unimpacted by people, and you're just observing, like like in a Londolozi or the other reserves in the area, it's... Um, yeah, it's it's very it's very special, very moving, and it's life changing. I know for many people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you got, you just have to. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like like the bush is something that you just kind of have to feel, you know, and you know, yeah, go see it exactly. For yourself, it's a, you know? It is a feeling. Yeah, <laughs> completely. It's a, it's a feeling. It's not it's not a, an observation or a, you know let's look and see and it's it's you, you feel it hundred percent. Yeah, um, no, you hit the nail on the head. What uh, what gives you hope for the future of Wild Space? Um, uh, your um, there are a lot of people doing very good things, and I think the the kind of it's hard to I think it's hard to get a to get a full appreciation of how much is being done when many of them are operating in isolation and they're doing things that aren't well known or publicized. But I think especially with the advent of social media, as dangerous as it can be, you know, when you start getting into these arguing matches when people aren't as educated as they need to be to be engaging in these kind of debates. I think the beautiful thing now is that so many more smaller conservation initiatives are starting to get the recognition that they need, that they deserve, that they're able to this able to be far more of a reach um, to an international audience where ultimately a lot of the funding needs to come from because there's not necessarily enough funding for all these initiatives in Africa itself. Um, it needs to be it needs to be global and I think the number of people that are getting access to the right kind of exposure um, and that are doing such amazing things is growing considerably. I mean, and just, you know, I, I handle a lot of the media for Londolozi and every day I come across some new promotion that's maintaining beekeepers in Kenya that are getting profit of the honey that they sell and those bees are protecting the crops from elephants because the elephants don't like the bees, little things like that, you know. And then, then there's the Black Mamba all-female anti-poaching team working uh, there in a reserve to the north of Londolozi, things and these things that 
aren't well known internationally, but now they're starting to get traction and it just needs one person to pick up that story and go, wow, I need a, I'm going to help there. And then you get a donor and then, you know, word of mouth. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the number of people that are doing a lot of good and that are starting to get more and more recognition and the access to media um, that they need to continue their cause, I think that's, that's going to be what creates this groundswell of especially international attention um, that hopefully saves the day. But it, yeah. it's certainly not going to happen overnight. That's the reality. Yeah. Apparently individual, yeah. you know, that's something there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've got yeah, no, they're good people out there. Two, two more questions for you. Now, this one's just kind of fun. Um, what, uh, what is an animal impression that you think that you do well? <laughs> oh, jeepers. Um, I have to be in the bush to be able to do them, but I, I like to think my, my Impala alarm call is, is fairly convincing because um, all it involves is really snorting air out of your mouth and it's it's a kind of... <laughs> that That's literally it. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it just sounds so idiotic that the Impala occasionally look in my direction and I convince myself that uh, that I've mastered it. Um, yeah, that's that's the only one I, I kind of let myself show to people, but only to to a few. Uh, yeah. That's good. I talk to the animals all the time, but I, I don't really. Nah, I don't me think too. Sometimes yeah. I only talk back. The, the only animals that I've ever like actually gotten to talk to me were hyenas. I think they're really easy to talk to. Yeah, they, yeah. And the and kind of curiosity, I think, it helps it helps swing it in your in, in your favor quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just remember, nice. like, many nights just going, and they just sort of yeah. go back and forth and back and forth. And they're and probably like, thinking, what the hell is this guy doing? There's <laughs> a drunk hyena over there. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, oh, they're, they're my favorite. <laughs> yeah. uh, do you have any good hyena stories? Um... She's also lots. I mean, you know, I, I had one chewing my shoe without even realizing the other day. We sit at a, we were sitting at a den, and what? and there were and the the focus was all on what's happening at the den's entrance, which is on the it was on the left hand side of the vehicle, and the door on all the Londolozi Land Rovers has been taken away on the driver's side because we get in and out so often to track and look at things and, um, uh, you know. And, to explain something to the guests that there's no door there so often your foot is just kind of sitting out on the skirting board and yeah, a couple of weeks ago we were sitting at a den and and one of the cubs had wandered into the bush and we were all looking at the rest of them that were gathered around the den's entrance and suddenly i just felt a little tug on my foot and i looked down and this naughty little thing had come back out of the bush totally um, in silence and was just chewing on my shoe it was it was a it was a leather leather shoes i think it, you really appreciated the t- the taste. I got a hell of a fright because I mean that size hyena. He was he wasn't tiny. He could take a could take a toe off with no problem. Um, and they they have this affinity for leather shoes. Shame one of our rangers left his out to dry the other day after di- or before dinner. Then he went down to dinner with his guest, came back and both pairs were were gone and in pieces. So I think he <laughs> found a, a couple of soles the next day. But um, yeah, hyenas are great. They're, they're, I mean they're the clowns of the bush and they get such a bad reputation, but just spending time at a, at a den site watching the cubs play and uh, they're magic they're my absolute favorite creatures out there they're they're, they're so comical and they're and highly intelligent highly evolved um social systems so they're, they're cool that's one of my best things is, is getting people to change their minds about hyenas 
it's a, it's a lot of fun yeah yeah cool. that, that barrier that you have to break because everyone sees hyenas and go oh lion king bad guys got it uh but there's so much more than just like a two-dimensional cartoon, yeah you know? yeah completely yeah i mean it, and it's kind of it's kind of a cool challenge you know you, you're always going to start off in the back foot with people saying oh, well not always but a lot of the time and they, they have that that preconceived idea and you, all you have to do honestly is take them to a den show them the cubs playing for half an hour and, and their minds have <laughs> changed very quickly done yeah so <laughs> yeah they're cool um. nice so uh so my last question for you is is the one that i kind of wrap up all my talks with um so if you could send a text message to everyone on the planet and it's got a conservation message in it uh what would it read it would be am i limited to 140 characters or <laughs> you can write a novel if you I, want <laughs> it would it be it would be something along the lines of without wild places we are we are lost as a species i mean i think you know the more i see those who are connected with the wild in some way whether it's just some birds in their garden or people actually living in the bush those are the happier people i know i generally have seen that there's a much a strong correlation with the connection to wilderness um and happiness and I think that a lot of people don't aren't able to appreciate that because they've never had that wilderness connection. Um, so it would be something along those lines of, yeah, it would be uh, probably fairly dramatic, but yeah, with, without wild places, we are completely lost as, as a species. Um, and how to get people reconnected is, is a, is a different story, but it can be, a lot simpler than you know a whole an entire trip to africa it can be just you know go into the forest and sit down for half an hour and watch a pigeon um <laughs> there's, yeah there's, there's really there's it's it's kind of like it's, it's like going for a run or you're never going to regret it afterwards it might be at the time you might think oh you know this is effort but it's one of those things that'll you will always feel better for having done some kind of nature connection yeah, well, that's yeah. the reality of it, though. Um, yeah. But, uh, hey, uh, this has been a really amazing chat. Really, really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Yeah, thanks, chat. Zachman. No, uh, not at all. No, nice to, nice to, nice to be able to do, get involved. And thanks very much for, for having me. And I mean, I, um, yeah, I had people visit Africa and, uh, and make those connections and um, become crusaders for the planet. And, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I, like I said, I, I can't say enough special enough about how magic that wilderness connection is and it doesn't have to be africa you know that's obviously my patch but it's um yeah i, I can't say i can't stress enough how life-changing how surreal how important that feeling of natural connection is so yeah if, if people can get out and um do and, and, and make the tiniest effort to just get in touch with nature i think that the world would be a far better place as, as kind of broad and cliched as that sounds it's, it is the reality the cliche is often there because they're true yeah right. so yeah there we go yeah. 
he is entirely right. What a chat. Uh, connection to wild space is good for the wild and it's good for the soul. Uh, to connect with James, you can find him as a contributor to the Londolozzi blog at londolozziblog.com. All of his social platforms uh, are linked in the show notes as well. Now, later this week, a very exciting episode. We're talking dinosaurs with the world-famous paleontologist and inspiration of Jurassic Park, Jack Horner. And until next time, guys, stay wild.